why do we need to study the history and ideas that lasted uh, from the Western tradition? It's because it's not because they're Western. It's because these these ideas shaped our world. These ideas actually made the societies that we must learn to navigate in yeah. and that made the societies that frankly are as, you know, life isn't perfect, but these are open societies that have achieved a level of tolerance for multi-ethnic populations that really doesn't exist anywhere else. And we should, you yeah, know, yeah, people forget there's not a heterogeneous society elsewhere, right? That has no, all these different they're never, I mean, something yeah. like this has never happened before. And all things considered, we do actually coexist uh, rather well. You're not supposed to say that, I think. <laughs> I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. Thomas, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you're named after an English poet, I understand. Is that right? That's right. Tell, yeah. Tell um, us about your upbringing. What's, what's, where's that from? Uh, so I'm, I'm named after um, a kind of proto-romantic uh, 17th century, 18th century uh, poet from Bristol, Thomas Chatterton, who, um, you know, he, he, he's kind of the picture image of neglected genius. Uh, he was a fatherless boy and grew up in poverty and um, actually started writing poems that he passed off as um, uh, as earlier kind of versions of poetry that he'd found. Um, and so he's pretending he found it. Yeah. To, why, why, why was he doing that? Um, I, he was a prankster, you know, he's, uh, Banksy's also from Bristol. I don't know. He's oh, kind of in funny. the prankster tradition. He, he, he was like an 11 year old boy and saying he found these medieval poems in the church across the street from his house. And at some point people realized that they were fakes. Uh, and so they accused him of, 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 you know, of being a plagiarist and, and just passing off, um, you know, wow crap but in fact he was writing them himself and he had an extraordinary kind of talent and he also was able to write um poems in his own voice at some point and so all of this he was he was recognized after he died uh penniless in london wow. um and so my father kind of you know my father was a fatherless uh boy growing up in galveston texas and at some point when he when he heard the story of thomas chatterton it really resonated with him it, you know he, he, in in some ways it's beautiful because it he identified with this person from a different time and certainly a different race but they had experiences that my father thought were really um somewhat similar. And I think my father found, um, in his own life that he had, um, not been able to achieve some of the things that he had wanted to achieve. So the, the, the kind of idea was that, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna wear this kid's name and you're going to, in some ways, you're going to do honor to him. So your, um, your dad always wanted you to be a writer. I, I read that you said. That. Yeah, he did. And so that kind of, you know, and at some point I realized like, I, you know, this kid died when he was 17 oh, and I hope to make it past that, you know, but in some ways, you know, wearing the name, you know, Nomen et Omen or whatever, wearing the name of a writer kind of gave me the confidence that, you know, that was something that, you know, I could do and it wasn't a strange thing to do. Um, and so I think that was a real gift that my dad gave me. Um, and you know, I, at some point after I started writing, um, for the New York times, uh, the Thomas Chatterton society in Bristol reached out to me, um, and asked me to come and speak to them about Thomas Chatterton. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, which was straight, they, you know, because the woman was just Googling Thomas Chatterton and came across, um, some of my writing. And so I went out a couple of times and spoke to the society and, you know, there were Thomas Chatterton scholars that were much more interested in him than even my father and I had ever been in 
came out that in fact he didn't die of despair in London, um, penniless, but in fact his career, they were arguing his career was taking off and that he was actually really successful with women and <laughs> he had had a little bit too much so, success so and so he trouble. was trying a, a remedy for, for syphilis oh, and he didn't poison wow. himself, uh, but he had died by accident because there's this gorgeous painting by Henry Wallace um, called The Death of Chatterton that hangs in the Tate Museum that's like this poet um, drinking his arsenic in despair. But (laughs) in fact, it was a mark of success. That's funny. That was a disease that came from the New World, I understand. It was prevalent then. And so your first first book was called Losing My Cool, How a Father's Love and 15,000 Books Beat Hip-Hop Culture. Talk a little bit about that. How it was, it was you, you felt hip hop culture was obviously very in opposition to this way your father was yeah. raising you and your love of literature. This is one of those things where, um, you know, subtitles get you into into some trouble, and it's very difficult to um, sum up the the thrust of a book in of in one subtitle. But what I was really talking about is the kind of street culture. I grew up in the 80s and mostly the 90s and the kind of street culture that was sold to to black youth as a kind of racial authenticity, mm-hmm. oftentimes through mainstream commercialized hip hop uh, music and culture. So it's not that... So there's a certain culture you had, the signal is you have to be part of this in order to be authentic. And yeah, be, you have to right. kind of uh, affect a kind of street credibility. And that was very tied up with your sense of yourself as, as being authentic to 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 your race and so, so, so you weren't really being black if you weren't doing certain things yeah and you know i mean this is something that is it's, it's very uh it's a controversial thing to say and you know even barack obama got a lot of pushback when he said it but there I was definitely abs- shouldn't say it then let's let you tell me about it <laughs> well you know there was absolutely the the sense that you know certain behaviors were considered acting white and that there was an oppositional kind of um identity that was built up against that. Where do you think, where do you think that came from? What, why was, you know, why did that have to be that way? Well, it didn't have to be that way. Um, and part of what my book is doing is really juxtaposing my, um, American experience with my father's growing up in the thirties and forties, um, in the segregated South and having a very different black experience, but not having the experience of, um, attempting to emulate the the guys in the street that was actually mm-hmm. not considered um, racially authentic or, or or what you need to do and and the, the the sense of an oppositional identity that's more of a post civil rights um, and and hip hop era um, adaptation that happened to the culture and that was like so my book is in many ways you know I'm trying to explore why my generation was in some ways sabotaging ourselves even as some of the exterior external obstacles that my father's generation faced had been removed what, is that is this still happening a lot today is it getting you know, better where are we going I think in a lot of ways things have gotten better I think certainly the kind of um, cartoonish um, stereotype that was very um, successful, the gangster stereotype that was successful in the 90s and early 2000s, um, that has gotten a lot more complicated and, and, and hip hop has evolved and um, depictions of black masculinity um, and, and what's considered authentic have certainly... It seems like there's more stuff about making money in it now than there was 20 or 30 years ago. Is that... Or, or not no, really? I mean, or I, in the 90s, Jay-Z was... Jay-Z and Puff Maybe Daddy were... Still similar to that. I mean, yeah. they were making money and they were kind of exemplifying that which isn't even the worst. I, I mean, you know, the kind of work ethic that a guy like Jay-Z embodied, that's not necessarily the worst thing to, to try to emulate. But, you know, the idea that um, 
first and foremost, you identify yourself through through physical attributes as opposed to mental endeavors. That, mm-hmm. I think that's very harmful. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the, the notion that uh, that you want to buck the system instead of learning how to operate within the system. Does this stuff just move based on like this, like cultural force is really hard for anyone to affect or are there certain ways that allies or people inside the culture could stare it in a more positive way? Like, how, like how, how does this get better? Well, in some ways it has gotten better. And, you know, I think like, so part of what I was arguing in that book is that, you know, uh, symbols really matter. Uh, ideas matter. Images matter. What you see as possible in the world matters. And I think that, you know, it didn't, change all of the problems that we have in society, obviously, but the image and the example of Barack Obama, um, I do think transformed, um, I don't think it's too much to say that it transformed to an extent blackness in America and made and normalized certain ideas and destigmatized other ideas uh, in a way that was very liberating and freeing. Also, hip hop culture got a lot more successful and you got a lot more examples of different ways of being uh, in the culture. And so this kind of narrow stereotype wasn't the wasn't the only There's there's a lot of people around me who've been very successful, who who want to use their success to try to help and be a positive force for this is going. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's a very dangerous thing because you're not even supposed to talk about some of these issues, let let alone they try to try to help. Uh, One of the ideas is just, you know, maybe we can bring talent from some of these communities and help them build companies. I built a lot of big companies. Maybe can can they be part of these new companies we're building? And then that could change if they make a lot of money doing that. Would that be a good role model? Like what are the types of things we should be thinking about about doing to try to be helpful? Well, I think that, you know, everything comes back to the kind of education you're exposed to early on and the kind of cultural capital that you're able to access. And by the time you're talking about um, high school or college, you're already very late. So I think that, you know, everybody having an access to a kind of quality daycare and early education is would, would be enormously transformative. So, so fixing early education. I think that's, I think that's fundamental. School, school choice yeah. is one part of this for you or, or you think about or. Yeah, I actually do. I mean, I'm not a scholar of, uh, of, of this specifically, but I think that, you know, I live in Paris and one of the things that I've really become aware of, especially during COVID is the extent to which we rely on high quality, um, public options for, even for our young son, uh, who's got high quality day, daycare. Mm-hmm. How, um, how old is your young son? He's three. Awesome. And, you know, there are a lot of families that are, you know, not only do the parents not have the kind of cultural capital that will allow them to to flourish in the American um, economy, but they don't really have a, much hope of getting their kids into that because they don't even have the ability to go to work and put food on the table knowing that their kids are well looked after. So that some mm-hmm. of the problems are so fundamental and basic that I think that actually like access to daycare, even before you talk about the kind of education you're getting in K through 12, so, is, so daycare is and quality extraordinarily education. important. So the, the early education, no, that's very interesting. You're, uh, Thomas, you're currently working on a book about illiberalism. I'm curious, like what, what, to start with liberalism, what does liberalism itself mean? Like how do you see liberalism and why is it important? Well, I think that, you know, when I'm talking about a liberal society or the liberal values, I'm talking about openness, uh, maximal tolerance for opposing and different and diverse views. Something we don't have very much. Something we don't really have very much right now. Um, You know, you're you're talking about 
compromise and persuasion and, you know, institutions working as opposed to kind of permanent opposition yep. or, 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 or getting, um, changes and, 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 and laws, uh, through by sheer force, um, or by fiat, I think, you know, we're in a crisis where we don't trust our institutions as legitimate. Fully half of the country, I think in 2024, um, either way the election pans out, we'll feel that the election was illegitimate. And that's, that, that, that's... Yeah, both both sides now are saying things are illegitimate if they don't get it done their way. Yeah. It's, it's intense. It's really dangerous. And so my book is actually, um, it's probably evolved a little bit since the language on the AI website, which I have to update. It's, it's I, I'm working on a book that's trying to trace the ideas and events leading up to to this kind of hinge moment of 2020. Uh, which so, I what, think, so what happened basically in the last 20, 30, 40 years that led to this problem? Yeah. And that led to this moment where I think that 2020, the confluence of the pandemic, the racial reckoning after George Floyd, um, and then the specter of Trump uh, and the idea that American democracy itself um, was potentially going to end, that this was the most important election yeah. of, uh, in history and that the entire country you know, um, was at stake. I think that this opened up a kind of state of exception and people were very vulnerable and um, it's transformed uh, our media, cultural, academic. When you, when you feel like it's an exception, you could you drop your values in order to get something done, and it makes absolutely. Sense. I mean, yeah. you had people on the left certainly willing to compromise values that you know, values of free speech, for example, stop free speech or be willing to lie to stop something they thought was worth. This stopping. is an emergency, but yeah. you know, you have to be very careful. You really want yeah. to give up free speech that easily? Yeah, that's a very dangerous path to go down. When, when you're t we're talking about what led to this, like one of the things that I think is really important is in the 1980s, Stanford dropped teaching the history of Western civilization. A lot of other schools did too, right? Jesse Jackson came in at Stanford, right? He's I think they didn't actually yeah. drop it. Though. Yeah, there was a protest about it, about this Western Civ class. But, but, they, I think but, but they changed the core, they right? Changed. They changed the course. So like, you no longer learn about the classics. You no longer learn, like, it's like there's, and, and I, I'm not like a, the West is the best by far, or, or you know, there's, there's value in every culture around the world. I, I believe that, but I do think the West was unique in its ability to, to have liberalism, you know, succeed and then kind of spread those values around the world. So I think it's we've lost that history. history. Yeah. And I think we've lost that. You, you wrote about how your father encountered Plato and it changed his life. Like it, it seems like tied to a similar thing. Is that a big part of what, 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 what led to these problems that we've given some of this stuff up? Well, I mean, we, I, we have a crisis of education, certainly, and, you know, there's a kind of lack of, uh, I think there's a kind of, it's difficult to get people to just flat out defend uh, great books courses or, you know, uh, or, 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 or dead white men, even though, mm -hmm. you know, it'd be surprising to Socrates and Plato that they were white guys. Because <laughs> yeah, they didn't necessarily fair. have much in common with the guys down the street who were outside of Athens city limits, yeah. you know, but you know, there's this idea that, uh, you know, that we need to, yeah, I love how I'm Irish on one side and Jewish on the other side, but I'm just like a white guy, you know, that's yeah, like, but isn't know, that strange because it's, it's weird, actually yeah. those are extremely different identities. Yeah. And both, you know? and both, both were minorities that were beat the shit out of in different cases by the way <laughs> right but now i'm but now i'm like it's just funny and then they merge together and now, right. now i'm the majority or something yeah. absolutely the idea of monolithic whiteness is relatively recent and it's it, it smooths over so many uh important uh, ethnic uh, trajectories into kind of one thing um but to, to talk about why do we need to study the history and ideas that lasted uh from the western tradition it's because it's not because they're western it's because these 
these ideas shaped our world. These ideas actually made the societies that we must learn to navigate in yeah. and that made the societies that frankly are as, you know, life isn't perfect, but these are open societies that have achieved a level of tolerance um, for multi-ethnic populations that really doesn't exist anywhere else. And we should, you yeah, know, yeah, people forget there's not a heterogeneous society elsewhere, right? That has no, all these different they're never, I mean, something yeah. like this has never happened before. And all things considered, we do actually coexist uh, rather well. You're not supposed to say that, I think. <laughs> but I think what you have to, because it's all crisis mode all the time, and technology yeah. and social media amps this up all the time. It's it, you. You could go onto Twitter and think that things have never been worse. No, I but know. things ex- actually have really. And you know, I, th- this is. I'm constantly writing. You know, with an eye to understanding the kind of the kind of country that my dad grew up in. And you know, you have to be crazy to not. You know, you you don't get complacent. But this is a different country, and this, oh, yeah. and I'm really lucky to be in this country or to be in a society like 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 contemporary France. And I think that we really lose perspective yeah, on, on what has been achieved. No, my grandma was born in 1920, came here when she was one from the Jewish side. Most of her relatives were killed, of course, back in, she's from Poland, so killed back in the Holocaust. And, uh, but she talks about when she was young, there's like the Jewish part of town and the Irish part of town, and there's like really tough race relations and people, you know, my, yeah. you know, there's just all sorts of crazy stories. You don't, you, everyone thought of things purely in terms of race. And it feels like we kind of, it feels like people want to go back to that though in a little bit, which is really scary to me. Like, it what, is scary what, actually, because the, the goal was to transcend those differences. And I thought we kind of had in the eighties, I guess I was naive. I was growing up in a very multicultural place in the Bay area. And, and, and you didn't really think of things as much in terms of race, but but now it feels like you're pushing kids to do that again. And what's strange is that actually um, you have the racists, but then you have the, the, the new anti-racists who share a lot of the same uh, premises and presuppositions as the racists do, that the category is everything. It's the thing that's most important about the individual. And it's the thing that can never be fully transcended. Uh, mm. That's extraordinarily counterproductive from my perspective. Yeah, I've gotten in trouble for saying I disagree with Kendi, but I, I I do disagree that you can't you can't actually talk about cultures and analyze things. He says, I guess the, to me the anti-racism is to just turn your brain off as well. I don't I don't know that, that that's my impression of what he's saying is you're not allowed to criticize anything. Well, he has this argument that you know is pure cultural relativism that you can't say that there's that no culture. Um, is better or worse than any other culture, but that you know, that's clearly overly simplified. Because yeah, well, depending yeah. on what you want to achieve, some cultures, some cultures do pursue certain goals that other cultures are even indifferent towards pursuing. Or some cultures treat women really badly and don't let them out of the house or don't let them own money. And I think I think we all agree to criticize those. But if it, you yeah. value uh, yeah. feminine autonomy and, and equality, yeah. then you would say that some. Some so cultures this achieve that better than this others. This is ironic to me because, like, the left usually is very aware of those issues, and yet, and, and and would and probably would criticize those cultures. But then you come over here, and it's like you got to turn your brain off. You can't talk about any of the issues. Oh yeah, yeah. Else. There's a lot of places where you have to leave your your sense of contradiction at the door. So uh, so, 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 so Thomas, you drafted you actually you drafted the Harper's letter in 2020, right? This is very yeah. Very, very and, uh, four other writers uh, drafted and organized the signatures. So so you're you're calling out the rise of left wing liberalism and your and right wing. I mean, we we were calling out yeah. both. We were saying that, you know, for the record, Donald Trump is is an illiberal, censorious yep. force in, in our nation, that's, that's, nation's politics yeah. and culture. But also there's a rising illiberalism uh, in progressive institutions. And, and, and what's your view a year and a half later? Is this, is this It's gotten is, worse. I, in some ways, it's gotten better because there's awareness. 
but it does feel like people are aware the woke stuff is a little bit crazy now. Yeah, they and were. a lot of people have have suffered, and a lot of people are aware that they don't feel good in there. They don't feel secure. I, very few writers would tell you that they feel just totally secure in this game. I right feel now. like the far left started coming for the mainstream left, and that's when everyone started to realize, wait a second. Right? Yeah, because your closest, they never actually come for the alt right or yeah. for actual white supremacists they come for the person that's basically agreeing with them on every issue but differs just slightly i feel like if you're a good person who basically agrees with them that you're the one who's most in danger for stepping out of line on something exactly and right. you be, and because the purpose is not to cancel as many people as engage in wrong think but to make some examples because the onlooker effect is so powerful so that's why like barry weiss who basically agrees with uh liberals on nine out of 10 positions has to be made an example of for, for her wrong thing on this other for one. her wrong thing yeah. on the very small amount of uh, issues that she that she disagrees on no that makes sense and, and it's interesting in our popular piece you wrote last year you actually did attack the right you didn't like the fact that they're restricting critical race theory teaching in schools which was well, yeah very think, interesting to me i'm curious to hear i think banning is not the way um, to achieve the the society that we want to achieve. But, I, so, so it's an interesting question because I, I, I believe in free speech, but I also believe like the government shouldn't be teaching certain things in a wrong way. Like, like if the government was teaching like about how not like the view of Nazis or something, like we'd probably be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't teach the view of the Nazis thought, you know, too, too much at least. That'd be kind of weird, right? So, so well, yeah, but we do that. teach the views of Nazis in certain history courses, you Got know, it. because you need to know. I think that... The answer is always more, more knowledge and and beating bad ideas with better. So ideas. they make sure that if they're teaching critical race theory, they're also teaching what smart people think who disagree with it. Then or would that be like the? Or I think that on the level of free expression, that parents should get involved in their schools and make compelling cases about, you know, what's wrong with the curriculum and 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 convince uh, teachers what's flawed in critical race theory. But the idea that there's a ban that, that always, that, that, that opens up a can of worms that I think people don't fully understand that once you get in the business of banning certain ideas on the basis of, you know, cause some of these laws are written in such a way that anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. something so vague, first of all, it can't really yeah. stand up in court, but if it could, you're not always going to be in power and things that you think of as uncomfortable will not always be the, the, the ideas totally. that are targeted. So you open up a kind of way of regulating thought that I think is very counterproductive. So banning is really, really tough. It, it is interesting. If you, if you did have like, if you had like a crazy wing of the KKK or whatever, they're like somehow infiltrated and convinced like 80% of people in like some schools to teach something, you'd probably want to stop them from teaching a philosophy you disagreed with. But so it's, it's interesting to me. Like, so I think a lot of people see CRT as this like neo-Marxist philosophy that's like brainwashed a bunch of people. And so they're really afraid. Don't try to brainwash our kids with this. So, so what should they be doing? But see, the thing is that instead? also when you ban it, you don't actually get the true believers don't stop. They don't stop because you're not arguing against Because them. they're not actually teaching specific CRT texts. It's a, it's a, it's a methodology. It's a way of seeing the world. It's yeah. a way of so you can't really teaching. Ban, you can't ban their way of seeing the world anyway. You can't. So you, you have, have to got persuade. To, so you got to argue and persuade. Should, should, should they be requiring certain things to be taught, perhaps? Would that be like, if they were going to do something, would that be better? Like require something small? I'm always or? in favor of adding more. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if that's not an accurate picture of the history of the United States, make a fuller more accurate picture. But the, the idea that you can eliminate discomfort from the study of history, you can't do that in any nation on earth because history is riddled with things that to our 
contemporary sensibilities are uncomfortable. Even stuff going on today Even is pretty stuff going on today, if you're talking about the world accurately. We're not supposed to talk about North Korea and China and everywhere right. else. And, and in parts of Africa, we just don't talk about some of the nasty Never stuff comes going up. on. And, and I mean, there's, for example, like you can't, this is considered something unwelcome in any debate, but there is slavery yeah. right now in Ghana, right yeah. now in Africa. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, we talk, and of course, things that happen at home, are going to matter more than things that happen halfway around the world for most people. But it is, there is something rich about the fact that we can't stop talking about the 17th century in, in America. But right now, no one's talking about the, the hundreds of thousands. I mean, we had video on smartphones of open slave markets in Libya a few years ago. Slave markets when Gaddafi fell. It's, it's, it's crazy. We, we are, it does seem like it's getting better, I guess, in those parts of the world. I mean, we were involved a lot when I was at Palantir Company, started 18 years ago, like looking into supply chains and figuring out where slavery was and helping disrupt it. It was amazing. There was found slavery in Southeast Asia and places. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and obviously in all sorts of these areas. So I do think- You were helping to disrupt those Yeah, we'd be wow. certain, so we'd just go to companies and be like, you should like look into your full supply chain and like mm -hmm. find these things and we'd help them do it and disrupt it and call it. When you call these things out, Mm -hmm. You know, and make them, you know, companies get embarrassed and then they, and then it sticks to the problem because then the slavery becomes unprofitable if their people aren't willing to have mm -hmm. it in their supply chain, which kind of a messed up that you have to use profit to stop slavery. But I mean, it's like, it's right, what, it's like, it's like, like human, human nature, right? Yeah, yeah, so that's <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's probably other ways you should be able to stop it. But no, I, yeah, so we've been involved in these issues. It does seem like it's getting better, but it's crazy, right? It's still around. There's, I think it's something that people are really bad at is the moral relativism of like, hey, this is a problem, but this is an even bigger problem. And everyone says you can't criticize that because mm -hmm. you can't, because we're not perfect, therefore we can't say anything about anyone else mm -hmm. which seems like a tough argument yeah I, I i think it's it's a it's a standard that's unrealistic but you know like is am i pronouncing his name chamath correctly chamath chamath i, I mean what he said was a really start people aren't usually uh that uh blunt i think he was being honest about the views i know i know a lot of nba owners mm -hmm. and i think he's being honest it's not one of their top 20 or 30 priorities. But they'll have pretend so and they'll, they'll say what the sort of say, Oh yeah, it's a shame, but then do nothing. Right. Where he's like, you know what? They don't actually care. I mean, and you think about it, like they actually don't care about the slavery in Ghana and they're not doing it either. They, they definitely they should. They they're not right. They don't even, it's like, there's like maybe the league with all black people should care about the fact there's black slaves or, or maybe, or maybe they should be caring about the fact that North Korea has been a slave state forever. And, and, right. we, and we never say anything or do anything. And, and so, yeah, so it, I think he's, he was, he was being honest in a way that was very uncomfortable. I think that people, I, I mean, I don't remember the last time I saw a public figure speak that candidly Yeah, in a way, that, <laughs> in a way that cuts against the, he's a good, he's he, yeah. I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. I disagree with him on that. I have, I, I think we should all be fixing these issues, but I, but I like the fact that he was totally honest about mm -hmm. it, how they see it. I want to ask about your, your race in America, about your, your book in 2019, you, you wrote a book, the self-portrait in black and white unlearning race. And what would you mean by unlearning race? And is, is race a social construct? Like how, how should we be thinking of race right yeah, now? Yeah. Well, it is a social construct. Um, it's, it's not biologically meaningful. There's nothing about a group that can tell you anything about an individual. Got it. Right? Because individuals can be anywhere on the spectrum. So a group could have a different average, but it's not meaningful that, for individuals. Groups can have different averages for a variety of reasons, you know, and none of that, um, in the standard understanding of, uh, of, of race, none of that amounts to racial differences within the species Homo sapiens. You know, we, we geneticists will call it population pools or whatever. Yep. And I'm willing to say that, you know, if, if the science changes and people show that population pools actually are um, 
mean something other than what we uh, what the state of knowledge says they mean right now i'd be willing to adapt my view on that but it still would never um and i'm not aware of anybody who seriously argues that it would be able to tell you about the person uh, about the individual yeah. and, every, every person and that's getting anything. back to your question about liberalism yeah. liberalism is about um treating people as individuals not as yeah. avatars of yeah. of uh, of identity groups and so what's happening now with the kind of you know the fetishization of racial difference um and let's, let's, for the sake of argument, let's say it's not biologically meaningful, which 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 most scientists yep. uh, do say. Um, we act as though it is. So we say we have this cognitive dissonance. We say that there's not um, this division between humans, and then we go and recreate it every single day, and it drives us mad. And you know. Racism creates race. Uh, you know, the, you, you look for justifications for why you treat people differently. So it's just kind of like an anti-collectivist sort of Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think you, you know, you have to be, um, first and foremost, you have to, you have to protect uh, the dignity of the individual. Um, and, you know, the way that we do race, the way that we came up with color, abstract color categories that group people along a scale of hierarchy this was handed down to us from the slave trade. This is yeah. the product of the collision of Europe and Africa and the New World through slavery. These are terms and ways of thinking of ourselves and each other that are irredeemably linked to that. So I, I, I get frustrated with the anti-racist discourse that just says that, you know, we, people still have these fundamental racial differences. So they're playing in the paradigm of slavery, basically, yes. is what you're saying. But That's you can't be, you, you have to be against the racial oppression as it still exists, but you can't stop there. You actually actually have to look beyond that and want to shift the paradigm or you're going to mm -hmm. keep recreating. So given, given that par problematic paradigm, what do you think of all the far left obsession with like CRT and equity and disparate impact? I think it exacerbates the problem. It's, it's, should we be it measuring says it wants to counteract. Should we be measuring disparate impact at all? Is that, is that like a dumb idea for the most part? Or how, or how, no, how do I, mean, think I think that, that there are ways to do it that don't reify race so you can talk about you know so in france they don't for example and this is not a perfect society but they don't measure race so they don't actually everyone's just a french citizen yep. so you can't actually do affirmative action based on race in france because no one knows but they can do it like sometimes they can help people from certain zip codes because actually it's not that being biologically descended from people from morocco makes you necessarily in need of a hand up in France. They're yeah. actually quite wealthy Moroccans in France. Yeah. But being from certain zip codes, if so, you so, want to so, help... So do it based on poor areas, yeah. maybe. You and you'll actually out. end up helping a lot of Moroccan kids, so, so if you that's you, your so goal. You think that'd be, that'd be like a better way to do it here, too? Don't I, think about I, the race. I, I do, because... Is parental income then maybe something to... Life is a lot more complicated than, you know, and also, yeah. you know, you reinforce notions of inferiority when you say that essentially belonging to a group is essentially a handicap. How do we how do we how do we make that shift? It seems like there's all this philosophy, all this investment of all these companies around this racial identity stuff. Yeah, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think you. I coming coming back to what we were talking about before. I think you have to make that shift by um, persuading people that what because most people want to be doing good. I think a lot yeah. of people this is good faith stuff. Most yeah. people don't understand the ways in which. Um, the ideas of permanent racism, permanent white supremacy that CRT um, revolves around, how that's counterproductive to the goals that you do genuinely want to achieve, which is that yeah. everybody attains a kind of equality, at least an equality yeah. of opportunity. Yeah. And, 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 and this is actually counterproductive. So I think we have to persuade people and show people why Kendiism doesn't get you to where you say you want to go. It seems like a lot of people might even know that it doesn't, but it's like a way to express their anger. Is that or a way to express their frustration? 
I've spent so much time thinking about this and trying to understand why. And, you know, I don't know. I think that a lot of people also, you know, life is full. People are busy. They want to do good, but like... They actually grab on to what they're told is the thing. Yeah, yeah. and they don't yeah. have a ton of time to sit with all of the issues. You know, you got to put food on the table. You got to do your job. Yeah. You're tired. Kendi says, this is, Kendi says any discrepancy in groups is evidence of either one group being superior or inferior or, 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 or racism. Yeah. So I don't believe black people are inferior. So this, I, I see that these kids are not graduating in the same... So it must be racism. And I've got to... Yeah, I got other stuff I got to do. So, you know? Yeah, it's just fat. They're just going fast and they want to be a good person. I think so. Uh, and so I think that actually that's how you get a lot of a lot of bad ideas succeeding. So you're an American, but you've lived in France for how, how long you've been in France? For? It's been 10 years now. Been 10 years. How, how is, has that changed your view on the U.S. and its role in the world at all? How, how do you see the U.S. Differently? Yeah, I mean, I, I missed some exciting years in the U.S. I come back and <laughs> forth a lot. But yeah, the, I think that, you know, the sad thing to say from, from Europe, and I, I spent a bit of time in, in Germany too, America's uh, lost some shine from from the overseas point of view, and it's a less um, reliable partner, and and the world seems dangerous, and there might be a war um, very close to a lot of our um, Western yeah. European neighbors, and they yeah. don't know. If you look what happened in Afghanistan this summer, they don't always know who's right. going to keep the world safe for them. From their perspective, they don't know that half the country will accept the person who's elected as a legitimate leader. And and they don't know if the next president will reverse all of the things that they thought they could trust from the previous president. How do do we fix this with Europe? I mean, it's not going to be a fast thing, but what, what do we have to do? I think we have to get our own house in order. I think you can't really be a good ally so long as your own house is constantly burning. And we have a crisis here, man. I mean, and it's, it goes way beyond um, partisan politics. We have, we have, you know, a crisis of legitimacy. So many Americans don't believe that the political system uh, is legitimate, not even is, is reflecting their, their goals, but is legitimate. Yeah, but, I think yeah, that the possibility for violence is 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 not zero. Is it, is crazy, and that was not how it felt when I left America in 2011. You know, that's like the before times. You know, yeah. people didn't people voted Republican or voted Democrat. Barack Obama was not everybody's choice for president, but. He was respected, though. Yeah. He was a legitimate president. Yeah. Even, you know, even it's, it's George Bush, yeah. e- even after the way that things shook out in Florida, Al Gore conceded and, and Americans yeah. accepted that he was the legitimate president. And we're in a different ballgame now. So the show's called American Optimists. We're trying to trying to look for for reasons to be positive. And you know, I, I am very positive. I'm a builder of companies. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really cool new technology that is lifting up a lot of lives, curing diseases, helping people. Uh, That's fo- a fact. Fo- yeah. yeah, yeah. Focus on building things. Uh, you're 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 a writer, cultural critic. Uh, you know, if you if I mean, I'm curious from your perspective, what should those builders be focused on? If you could like wave a wand and like have all the mm-hmm. people building things do something to make things better, what would you do? I mean, what I'm going to say to you is going to sound really modest because you're you're thinking of going to space and you're thinking of doing like really crazy difficult things but if if you genuinely care about things like the debates we're having around CRT or or or, or how do we make a multi-ethnic society work or how do we improve uh you know outcomes for kids i think investing in uh new institutions um which probably actually is a lot less expensive than some entrepreneurs and philanthropists um, 
imagine what, what kind of, I, what kind of institutions? So I, you know, I think that we have a problem when the media becomes essentially ideologically driven and we need more genuinely independent, uh, you know, publications, uh, whether digital, but also, you know, print matters to a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, taking everything digital isn't, I don't think always the answer, but we need, yeah. um, we need new, um, systems of, of bestowing prestige. So, you know, what happens when the MacArthur Foundation gets completely ideologically captured by yeah. one point of view? Why why aren't there other sources of validation and prestige and prizes? You know, and these are things that could actually make an ecosystem of knowledge production um, more heterodox. No, it's, I, I, I agree. You know, we're trying with the University of Austin with Barry. West That's right. And, yeah, yeah. Know, and and, I and so I was that. actually talking about this yesterday. There's so much wealth in this country. It's actually kind of amazing that. This is the first time someone in a while isn't since it, Stanford or Duke or something that somebody ambitiously is trying to start a new. Well, well every, everyone's rooting against us, though. You know, is the problem. It's so like you have to succeed. Like, yeah, people you don't actually like have to make a really quality and and it's hard because we're like we're. I mean, I think this would be a total failure if it went to the right, and it would also be a failure if it was conquered by the same people who conquered all the other universities. So it has to not be conquered by anyone. Right. And it's just really, really hard because everyone instantly assumes that it's being conquered already, and even though you include people from both sides. And so it, it's like it's like this mind virus of being on the left or the right, like tax and pulls at everything. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I find, you know, I honestly find myself too. And I'm even when I'm doing my very best to be moderate, like sometimes you get some, one part of your brain that's like, Oh, screw that guy. He goes mm-hmm. against my view on this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's really hard. Like that's I, why I, people, you, people think it's easy. It's actually, people think that being a moderate, it just means that like whatever people on the left or right think you just like are wishy washy, but it's no, it's actually like very hard. You actually have to believe in compromise, believe in not getting all of what you want. You, you believe in actually, um, making, alliances with people that share some of your goals. So, 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 so how should writers and journalists and artists be approaching this? Like, what should they be doing to help with this? I think that what you have to be doing is be willing to say what you genuinely believe and pay the cost of not being the most popular person so car- on Twitter. courage you're saying. That. Yeah, and I think that that's actually very difficult because these are, you know, there's an overproduction of elites, there's labor scarcity, people yeah. want to be liked, people want to go along to get along. And I think that, you know, artists and writers have an obligation to be true to what they genuinely believe. And you would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be shocked, but a lot of people would be shocked by what people believe privately compared to what their public positions actually end up being. There's more coverage up there. So we started American Optimist to try to push back on this wave of cynicism. Maybe last question, like what's the best case to be optimistic about liberalism in America? It's the only system that really works. It's, it's the system that's gotten us the kind of uh, quality of life that uh, we kind of take for granted to the point that we're experimenting with, with, with forms that have never worked in the past and won't work in the future. Um, liberalism makes possible your ability to dissent, your ability to protest, your ability to, to, to critique. And you think enough people hopefully will realize this, that we're going we're gonna to see it win again? I hope it doesn't have to get too bad for people to miss what, what they had. Awesome. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Pleasure.